Our scripture today is from Psalm 32. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from all the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the start of our uh, Lent series uh, called Boot Camp for the Soul. Um, I've never been to boot camp. I know that some of you have, and hopefully over the next little while I might be getting some uh, interviews, but I've never been to boot camp. But I did once go when I was a teenager. I went to this army training day uh, in Crickhowell in Wales, and uh, I went there with my school, and we got to complete an assault course or an obstacle course um we got to fire a weapon and uh which i know for country folk no big deal right but for me in wales that was uh it was a big deal we didn't do the whole squirrel thing you know there um and uh but but one of the one of my highlights uh, of that time of that day at the uh of army training was to uh drink this freshly made soup that we made um, with earthworms that we just caught and killed. And so I'm not sure if it was soup or if it was a meal. It was a mixture of chewiness and uh, liquidity, which was uh, very unique and very special. And, uh, uh, but it kind of makes me think that I'm not sure if I would survive in an actual boot camp. Uh, I'm sure eating earthworms would be one of the least uh, troublesome things, but I'm happy to watch them on American war movies, um, but not really go to one myself. Uh, now, according to Merriam-Webster, the, ter the term boot camp can refer to one of three things, either a Navy or a Marine Corps camp for basic training. Number two, it can be a disciplinary facility or program in which young offenders are forced to participate in a rigidly structured routine. Or three, a place or undertaking that resembles a military boot camp, especially by requiring one to endure intensive training or 
initiation and uh, you know there's a couple of years ago where it was it, it was it was the fad right it was to have exercise boot camps to wake up at some awful hour of the morning and to do things that no human being should ever be required to do so those are those are kind of the three ways of understanding boot camp but all of them say, though, that boot camp is not for the faint of heart. Uh, but it is a great place to go if you want to make some changes in your life. And this is actually a great way for us to view Lent. Uh, it's a way to make a break from the ordinary. It's a, it's a chance for us to do something new, to change our routine in order to achieve a different outcome. Um, it's the antidote to the mentality. If you, want to do, if you want the same results, then just do the same thing over and over again. And that's why we're going through boot camp for the soul this Lent. Uh, and every boot camp has an intended outcome or a goal. And the goal, I would say, of our boot camp during Lent is joy. That's what I want. I want us, as we go through Lent, to come out experiencing joy. Um, and I know it seems to be strange talking about joy as we go into Lent. In fact, as a worship team, we were talking about this one song that we wouldn't sing a particular verse because, you know, you don't want to jump straight to the resurrection as you're wrestling with, uh, you know, the realities of Lent and the suffering of what Christ went through. But, but, but I still want our intended outcome during Lent to be joy. And this kind of makes sense because when you think about the cross, when you think about what Jesus went through, that the goal, the, his ultimate destination through living, dying uh, as a human was joy. As uh, Hebrews says, it says, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, verse 2. And so it's this promise of joy that enables us to have the power to endure our cross that we have to carry. And this, and this nicely takes us to the first verse of our main text, uh, Psalm 32 this morning, that says this, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I'm going to read that again. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32, verse 1. And before we carry on, I want you to notice one thing, that according to this verse, joy, in this case, it does not come from a lack of sin. But it comes from having that sin or that transgression forgiven. And this is an important point because it means that there is a joy that is peculiar, that is strange, that is unique to the person who has turned to Christ to be forgiven, to have their sins taken care of. It goes something like this, I think. Um, there's, there's a chicken who's lived in freedom in a farmyard all of its life. And this chicken, you might say, is content, maybe even happy. They're fine. On the other hand, there's a chicken who's just been released from a battery farm to live free in the farmyard. That chicken is not experiencing contentment at that moment. That chicken is experiencing something else. They're experiencing joy. And of course, that's not to say that we should seek out sin. We shouldn't seek to put ourselves in the cage just so that we can be freed and experience joy. Right? Romans 6 is very clear on that point. But it is saying that if you have sinned, which is all of us, 
or if sin has defined your life in any way, then you're not perpetually relegated to some lower form of living or knowing happiness. That you aren't fated to only knowing mild contentment in your life. You aren't fated to never knowing joy if you've sinned or even if you're in the middle of sin right now. Because the joy is for the one who has been forgiven of the sin that they have done. Or Jesus words it like this to Luke, I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who don't need repentance. Luke 15 verse 7. So there's joy to be had in repentance. The goal of our boot camp is joy, your joy and Jesus's joy and the angel's joy. And maybe the greatest blocker of our joy or a preventer of our joy is sin. You might think that circumstances or hardships might be the greatest hurdle that we have to get over in order to get to joy, but actually it's sin. Sin is a joy blocker. And Romans 5, another one of our lectionary passages this morning, explains how sin came into the world. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. So the sin came through one man, Adam and Eve, and then through it death spread to all people because we all sin. So we're all held accountable because we all sin. So sin is contagious, it's easily caught, it's transmissible. And somehow we think that we can deal with sin by ignoring it, by pretending it's not there. If I ignore my sin and just carry on, eventually I will forget about it and I won't have to worry about it. That's how we often deal with sin. Which is absurd because that's like saying that you can will away a cold during flu season by simply saying you don't have a cold. It doesn't work. And so we have all these people who are in Christ who love him and are serving him, but are lacking in joy simply because they don't know how to deal with sin. Who are thinking that if they just pretend that the sin does not exist, somehow the sin will drift away, maybe dilute into the atmosphere, fades over time. You know, we have this thought in our mind that sin has a half-life and over time it will eventually fade away. But that's not how it works. The first step to getting rid of sin and therefore arriving at joy is understanding how sin can get its claws into the human soul and mind. And the way it gets into us, into our lives, is through temptation. In Genesis 3, another one of our lectionary passages this morning, we're given uh, a powerful picture of the first time our natural desires were weaponized by Satan as temptation. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the tree in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Genesis 3. So we see here that temptation 
temptation made the way for sin. Temptation opens the door to our hearts, making the way open for sin to walk into. It says, right, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom. That's the temptation. And then she took some of it and ate it, gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate ate it. That's the sin. So it's vital for the follower of Jesus to, to recognize, first of all, that just because you're being tempted does not mean that you are in sin or you've sinned. Any more than just because you've driven past the Dairy Queen doesn't mean that you've eaten a blizzard. And I know that in my experience, as well as many others that I've talked through over the years, that Satan loves to give followers of Jesus this thing known as false guilt. Meaning, feeling guilty for being tempted. Feeling bad for having a thought cross your mind. Martin Luther uh, worded it like this. He said, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. And I've seen many times how the enemy, the devil, likes to upgrade temptation in our minds. How could you even think that you're such a bad person because you had that thought? This must mean that you don't love Jesus, you horrible disciple. So he tries to upgrade temptation in our minds at the same time as he tries to downgrade sin in our minds. Hey, don't worry about it. Everyone's doing it. God will forgive you. You just have to come to him afterwards. And so there's this kind of dual upgrading of temptation and downgrading of sin happening, which means that Satan is super sneaky. And if you think that he's this kind of cartoon character who's blundering around and, you know, you know, with a shotgun seeing who, no, this is not what he's like. He's strategic. He's wise. He's incredibly intelligent. He's had thousands of years of practice to target people like you. And this leads a lot of Christians confused and carrying this unnecessary weight of upgraded temptation because they think that temptation is equal to sin. Now, the fact of the matter is that we all give in to temptation at some point. None of us is sinless. And so while it's important for us to create a plan of action to avoid sin, I absolutely believe that. I also think it's just as important to have a plan of action once the sin has been committed, once the trespass has happened. Because if Satan can keep you in a place of guilt and shame after the sin, then I believe that he is overjoyed. And remember, we're about our joy, not about Satan's joy. And this leads us back to verse 1 of Psalm 32. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So the transgression in this verse has happened. The sin has taken place. What now? Well, verse 1 seems to say that there is hope after sin, that there is still hope for joy after sin. You see, the issue here, as I said before, is not whether you've transgressed or not, but whether your transgression is forgiven. Are you forgiven? Not whether you've sinned or not, but is that sin, has it been covered? Has something been placed over your sin so that it can no longer be seen? Think of a band-aid or a medical salve. It covers the wound in order to bring healing. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. There is joy 
in covering the wound of sin with the salve of Jesus' blood, with the healing, sterile bandage of God's grace. There is the capacity for joy after sin. You can know joy after sin. You have that sin in your mind right now and you're thinking, not me. Yes, you. Absolutely, yes, you. As long as you deal with it correctly. Now, I've already explained about how sin Uh, how temptation precedes sin and almost every sin that a person does is premeditated in some fashion that there are very few sins of passion like it just happened right place right time didn't know what I was doing there's almost always a sense of premeditation there's always a period of temptation leading into that sin however did you know that sin that temptation does not precede sin temptation also follows sin There is a form of temptation that attacks the person after the sin has been committed. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no no deceit. Verse 2. And what God's saying here is that after the sin has taken place, after the deed has been done, that thing that is making you feel so ashamed, the temptation that follows is that of covering it up. Pretending that sin didn't happen in the first place or being deceitful, as the passage words it. Notice how iniquity and deceit are presented in parallel here. And so I don't think that, when, that, that, that deceit is the original sin. You know, I, don't, I, I, I think that he's talking, that the deceit here is he's talking about lying about sinning. Or pretending that you didn't sin, that you didn't just lose your temper or act out in lust or respond in jealousy. He's talking about the cover-up that happens after the sin. And he's saying that the best thing that you can do after the sin is to come clean. If you come clean, then you can know joy again. And then he gets into this powerful and rather uncomfortable picture of what happens when sin is not confessed, when it's allowed to stagnate and fester in the body of the person who sinned. Listen to these words. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Verse 3 and 4. The bones are brittle. The strength is drained. God's heavy hand. I hate this verse because I know exactly what the psalmist is referring to. I know that when I leave sin unconfessed, this is exactly how I feel. I feel fragile. I feel weary. I feel heavy. I feel that I'm unable to rest or to calm down, to be at peace or to find joy. And here's the thing, we think that we can hide our sin by ourselves. We think that we can create an elaborate cover-up so that no one will ever know what we did. We zip our lips and we throw away the key. We make a pact with ourselves or with our co-conspirators never to mention it again because if we don't say it, it didn't happen. But we cannot stop the sound of conviction squeezing out. Okay, listen to these words. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. Look at this. The psalmist is silent, and yet the psalmist is groaning. 
How can a person be silent but groaning? I think it's because the words that should have come out, articulated as a confession, instead squeeze out as a groan. I know that after I've sinned, I'll be walking around the house, whatever, and all of a sudden, a flashback will come and and I'll just go, ah. As I replay that sin in my mind, as I feel that shame and that guilt, in my head, I'm thinking, how could I have been so stupid? I feel sick to my stomach, but it comes out as a groan from deep within my gut. But this isn't how it has to be. Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Sometimes it takes us longer than it should for us to reach this point of confession. But when we reach that place of heartfelt and sincere confession to God, it's like lancing the head of a spot, a boil. You know the one where it squeezes all over the mirror? It's like releasing the pressure on a pressure cooker. It's like glugging a cool drink of water after being in the sun all day. It feels good. It feels really good. And again, this isn't about not sinning. Of course, if you can avoid sinning in the first place, then that's best. But if you do sin, then don't keep silent. Instead, acknowledge your sin to God. Speak it out. And when I confess, I try to be as brutally honest in my confession as I'm able to be, even though sometimes I'm embarrassed to hear those words cross my lips. I still say them. You know, Elsa knows this struggle, right? At the beginning, all she wants to do is to hide her sin. She says, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Right, that's what Elsa does at the beginning. Because, of course, that movie is all about sin. We all know that. But concealing is not freedom, especially when it comes to sin. True freedom is when you come to God, you kneel down, and what do you do? You let it go. You let it go. You cannot hold it back anymore. And when the sinner comes to God and says, I will confess my sins, my transgressions to the Lord, the result gloriously is not God saying, how could you have done that? God never says, how could you have done that? Because he knows exactly how you could have done that because he's all knowing. Instead, what happens is this in verse five, it says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. We don't confess to God to tell him what he doesn't already know. He already knows we confess so that we can hear the words come out of our own mouths and be free of the power that unconfessed sin has over us by applying the cleansing balm of Jesus's blood to that sin. So with all that we've heard about temptation and sin and confession, what is the response? Well, verse 6 tells us, Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Please don't miss this. This is the gold in the psalm. This is the good stuff. This is the glory in the gospel. It says, first of all, it says, Therefore, in light of all that I've said about sin and how it must be confessed, 
Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray. So who are the faithful? In the context of Psalm 32, who are the faithful? Is it the sinless ones? Is it the holy, pure ones? Are they the faithful? No, they're not. The faithful are not the sinless ones. The faithful are not the holy and pure ones. Not in this psalm. The faithful clearly are the ones who are trust God enough to be honest with him. The faithful are the ones who confess. I'm so used to think of the I'm oh, I'm so used to thinking of the faithful as, as the ones who don't sin, who somehow steer clear of sin all of their lives. I think of those as the faithful who are the clean rap sheet, who never um, lie or cheat or lust. But in God's estimation in Psalm 32, and surely God's estimation is the only one that matters, the faithful are the ones who confess their sin. And in the moment of that confession, God, he doesn't just declare you clean. He declares you faithful. Why? Because you know God. Because in that moment of confession, you're being true to the character of God as revealed in Scripture. A God who forgives sin and who, who covers iniquity as it is confessed. And there's this sense of urgency in the psalmist's words, right? Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Immediately, don't waste one more second living in the wasteland of lies and cover-ups and pretending, come home, come home to God immediately. And as you pray, then you're declared faithful because you know that God is faithful. You know, the people who never have to confess sin or never confess sin, they don't know the faithfulness of God because they've never tested the faithfulness of God. Only the person who's confessed their sin has tested God's faithfulness and found out that he is rock solid. Therefore, let everyone who's faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. When the floodwaters, the great floodwaters of condemnation come, when the floodwaters of judgment come, they will no longer reach you. You will be out of their reach. The safe person in the flood isn't the one who pretends that there is no flood. The safe person is the one who knows that the flood is coming and through confession and repentance allows God to place them in a safe place out of reach of the water. So the psalmist makes it personal. He says that you are my hiding place. Jesus is my hiding place. This is personal. This is relationship. That song, right? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin. The double cure. Cleanse me from, save me from its guilt and power. Rock of ages cleft for me. Jesus is the only one who can save us from the judgment that our sins rightfully deserve. And we access his saving power through confessing our sins to him. And then after confessing out of the sin God promises to direct, instruct, and lead. Verse 8, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Arriving at joy is a journey, and God has made a commitment to, to guiding you, to counseling you, to speaking words of knowledge, saying, turn left, turn right. But he can only guide the one who has confessed who has prayed to God, who has acknowledged their sin. 
And we can see how this works, right? If the person who has sinned and given into temptation, then after the fact hides their sin, you'll try to dig a hole and hide it in the ground and hope that no one notices. If they're so fixated on pretending they've not sinned and avoiding God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, and pretending that everything is okay, if they're doing that, then they've pretty much unfriended God. They might say that they love him and worship him, but actually, when you don't come to God in that moment, you're saying, God, I'm going to handle it myself. I don't need you. They are ghosting God through their silence, often because they're afraid. They're afraid of of what God will say if he finds out their sin, as if he doesn't know already, right? They are afraid because they believe that being faithful means not sinning rather than not avoiding God after sinning. But to the one who confesses their sin, who lances that pimple, now they have God as a guide and a friend, not as a judge. And the psalmist ends with some true but harsh words do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come to you verse 9 why does God describe uh, the person who refuses to confess as a horse or a mule well maybe because the only way to get a mule to where they need to go is by being dragged by the bit in their mouth by overpowering them in other words The person who chooses not to confess their sin is simply being stubborn. But God in his grace and mercy is so committed to getting you on the right track that he will meet your stubbornness with his own stubbornness. And I know that God can out-stubborn every single one of you here. He will drag you there. He will put circumstances in your way and he will prick your conscience so much that you're literally miserable all of the time. He will lay his hand on you day and night. He will drain your strength. You will feel his conviction so strong that it feels like a weight on your back and a bit in your mouth. Why does he do this? Is it to punish you? I don't think so. I think it's because he wants you back. He wants you to wake up and to know joy again. And the only way to know joy is to confess. It's to tell God what he already knows. And the result, verse 10. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. The result of confessing your sin is experiencing God's faithful love surrounding you. God's hesed. God's faithful love. You thought that your confession would result in God rejecting you, but in Christ, your confession is the entranceway to deeper intimacy with God than you could ever possibly imagine. Trust God with your confession, and you will experience his faithful love surrounding you, and you will know joy again. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. You're not just faithful now, but you're righteous. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Can you hear that? That you make a transition from, uh, from being faithful because you trusted God with your confession to being righteous and upright in heart. Because in confessing your sins, Jesus' righteousness becomes yours. You are holy, you are clean. The old saying, better out than in, is so true. 
You're just as someone who's sick to their stomach with whatever poison is in their belly is, is best, it's best to vomit it up, to throw it up. And this also works on the spiritual level as well. If you're feeling sick to your stomach with what is going on, with what you've allowed to go on in your life, with what you have done, the best thing to do is to vomit it out. So as we finish week one of boot camp, hear this. The only way to feel better after sinning is to vomit out your confession. Confession is a spiritual emetic. When you feel sick to your stomach with your sin, when you feel brittle with your bad choices, when you're groaning with guilt, when your strength is drained and your joy is gone, there is only one solution. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And Jesus happens to be the one who is knelt down next to you. He's holding your hair back as you vomit up the poison of unconfessed sin because he knows that in just a moment, in just a glorious moment, you're going to feel a whole lot better because he knows that there is joy after sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can kneel over the toilet bowl of confession and we can vomit it up. We can get that bad stuff out. We can tell you what you already know. And at that moment, Lord, you consider us to be faithful. You consider us to be faithful. You say that you are my faithful ones because you're trusting me with your confession. And then later, Lord, you say you are my righteous ones. You are my righteous ones because Jesus' righteousness has been applied to you. You are upright. Lord, would you give us the courage to confess? Would you give us the courage to tell you, to verbalize what, is already, what you already know? Lord, it's scary. I know it's scary. It's scary every time I do it. But Lord, I don't want to walk around groaning. I don't want to walk around with my strength sapped as in the heat of summer. I don't want to walk around with brittle bones and with the hand of God laying heavy on me. I don't want to be stubborn like a mule with a bit and a bridle. Lord, I want to willingly come to you and make my confession to Almighty God and be declared faithful and righteous. And I pray for my friends that they would know that joy as well.